HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com. All right, it is Thursday, and you're tuned in to the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. We're coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Beautiful sunny day, so excited to be out without a coat on, and also thrilled to be on the line with Fred Magdoff. Fred, how are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, so we have Fred on to talk about uh, a book that he's put together called Agriculture and Food in Crisis, Conflict, Resistance, and Renewal. It's a collection of works that take a global perspective at the current state of our food system. And Fred, I was like scanning through your bio, um, getting ready for the show, and it, it's so extensive. I wanted to give you a chance to kind of pull out some highlights for us and tell us a little bit about your work and kind of what led you to um, to the book. Well, I, uh, I'm retired from the University of Vermont and uh, do a little bit of teaching, do lecturing and writing now. Uh, I'm uh, an adjunct professor at Cornell University, and I worked for many years on, um, on soil health, really, or soil fertility. Uh, was my area and uh, the interaction between the soil and plants. And uh, so I did a lot of work on use of manures, uh, fertilizers, um, different uh, techniques for improving soil. And um, and I got very interested in soil organic matter uh, and uh, and its critical role in the soil and so um, and its critical role in promoting soil health. And uh, so I I worked in that area for a long time and written a number of uh, articles and books uh, on it. And uh, I'm also interested in the social and political issues. Uh, I taught uh, a course that dealt with that here at the University of Vermont. 
and um, and uh, they they are just so important to me, especially after uh, what happened in 2008 with the world food crisis. Uh, but I was interested in it even before that time. So uh, it's, uh, the the political, economic, <laughs> and the act, actual practice of agriculture uh, all inter- all interests me. Yeah, and, and are all kind of intersecting. I was hoping to kind of start the show, you could talk a little bit about agriculture in, in higher ed um, and kind of what what does the education look like out there for someone who is is interested in, in going to a, a you know two year or four year university to study agriculture? What are what are the options and how how does um, the work you're doing now kind of fit into the, the the bigger spectrum of what's available for people to study? What's being taught? Who's funding it? That kind of stuff. Well, I'd say most uh, most uh, first off every every state has at least one agricultural school that is a state school like Cornell for New York state is the is the state the state agricultural college is at Cornell and in Vermont it's the University of Vermont in in uh in Connecticut it's UConn University of Connecticut and and every state has at least one and sometimes they have more than one and those are all the land grant institutions those are the so land grant institutions right. that's right they were funded initially with land grants from Congress uh, to teach and to do research uh, in, uh, well, initially to teach and then do research and extension. So I would say that, that most of the education that goes on is fairly conventional. Um, that is, it's uh, teaching uh, about agriculture, I would say, <laughs> the, the conventional agriculture, um, where you're growing commodities, um, usually in fairly large scale, and you're uh, using the traditional, what has become a traditional package of inputs, uh, fertilizers, pesticides, uh, uh, seeds from uh, companies like Monsanto, etc. Uh, there are, though, who I'm sure in many of the schools, there are people who are very interested in sustainable agriculture and alternative agriculture and doing things differently for lots of reasons, which we can talk about if you'd like. So, um, you know, I think you need to check in and make sure, find out what, what the orientation is if you are interested in studying agriculture and uh, check and make sure what, what types of courses are being taught and what's the orientation of the people that are teaching them and of the department. There are definitely some that what I would call more progressive than others. Right. And have you seen, I mean, have you seen, um, I'm just wondering, you've been in, you know, higher ed for, I, what is it, 30? <laughs> for a long time. For, 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 for long enough to kind of um, maybe, yeah, maybe see some, some um, shifts. And I, I'm just, to get at like more of a historical perspective, um, the course material, I mean, has it, has it changed? Do you see it changing from when you first got into the field? Kind of what's the ebb and flow? And, and well, yeah, sure it's changed. I mean, we've learned more. I mean, many things that I learned as a student and I taught initially when I came here, uh, I found out just happened not to be true. You know, <laughs> so, so, you know, the uh, agriculture is still a relatively young science, and uh, so, uh, so clearly, you know, things have changed. I would say also you have more of an understanding of the problems of the, the conventional agricultural uh, System as it developed in the United States, there are multiple problems: water pollution, use of 
excess use of pesticides, contamination of food with pesticides, the overuse of antibiotics. Uh, the, you know, the, the, I mean, I can go into them all if, if you're interested. But but there is growing understanding that there are problems with that system, and so there are uh, people on many of the campuses, professors I'm talking about, that mm-hmm. are int- interested in working in alternative systems, alternative ways of doing things. Um, and uh, and that includes also alternative ways of, you know, uh, interacting with the market instead of just uh, selling uh, completely to a uh, wholesaler. Uh, there's a, a movement now to, as I'm sure you and your listeners are aware, to sell locally uh, to, to know who's buying your food, and so they should know who their farmer is. And, um, and so there, there are different ways of selling now that were very unusual before they become fairly common. So I would say they're, they're, they're def- things are shifting. Uh, I don't think they've shifted anywhere near far enough at the university level, but, uh, but the change happens very slowly in that uh, level. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of our guests and a lot of the, the people we've been lucky enough to kind of have here on the show are, are definitely um, farmers or, or young people interested in getting in, into farms, but are definitely coming at things from a much smaller scale. So I think right. it, it's always interesting to kind of get the broader perspective if you're thinking about really the majority of food that's produced in the U.S. and in the world um, and, and how you essentially, as advocates, kind of work, work to change in that environment and what role education can play, but then also what is the role for New Yorkers? Um, what, what can us kind of city folk look to, um, you know, we, we can uh, you know, definitely vote with our dollar and spend our money at the farmer's market, um, but are there other things um, from your perspective that we should be aware of or be thinking about um, to kind of create change in that environment? Well, yeah, I mean, there are different limitations. Uh, we certainly know how to grow food in an ecologically sound way. Okay, that, And that, by the way, when that is done, in almost all cases, the yields are actually higher than they would be if they were grown conventionally on large-scale operations. So the, the, the practice of what you might call sustainable agriculture, organic agriculture, or organic plus agriculture, is, um, is known. Uh, so the, one of the problems is that farmers in this, in this field uh, have a hard time making money unless they're doing some value-added products of their own. Um, for example, you know, a farmer in the Hudson Valley who's growing uh, produce and brings it down to New York City or, I don't know, to Albany or wherever, um, Usually those people are not making enough money, really, to pay themselves a decent wage, pay their laborers a decent wage, have health insurance, put enough money away for their retirement, etc. So um, uh, it's it's a tough tough road. Unless you have uh, even the CSAs, the Community Supported Agriculture, and I know that there are some delivering to New York City, um, even those the farmers don't make, uh, well, some do and some don't, but I would say a lot don't, don't make enough to really cover their 
expenses if you include retirement as part of their right, expenses. Right, right. And there so, is this kind of weird idea that farmers should be poor. Or I mean, they're, they're, right. that's, you know, like, where did that come yeah. from? Why, <laughs> why is that like, I mean, that's the expectation, right? Like, Well, yeah, there's a cheap food, you know, the United States has had a cheap food policy, and, and it has produced cheap food. Uh, we can talk about whether it's healthy or not, it's a whole other story, but it's, but it's fairly inexpensive. It's going up now for reasons we can talk about. I mean, right now, as it did in 2008. But it's, um, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it became possible when you're producing at huge scale um, with very little labor uh, to produce food fairly cheaply. And so um, by using the inputs that they were using. So, um, so people got used to it. And, and uh, it, it is a difficulty. It's a difficulty trying to break in now, although many people are able to do it. They're not really making enough money, at least in my mind. Uh, one way they can, and, and a lot of farmers have tried this, is by taking one of the products on their farm and adding value to it, you know, processing it somehow. Right. And then selling that. Uh, up here in Vermont, certainly there are many, many examples of that, of the people uh, making, a, you know, instead of selling the milk from the, the cow or the goat or the sheep, they're making cheese from it. Right. You know, or, or yogurt uh, or kefir or whatever. And, um, and there are people who are, you know, also taking vegetables and making, you know, canned, uh, canned goods that they sell. Um, and uh, so there, there are a lot of different possibilities uh, for adding value, um, but it's it's um, it's almost like a different. Uh, it's a different like a, business. It's, it's, it's a different like a job. Different yeah, that's right. That's right. So different set of regulations. Different yeah, set. That's of, right. That's right. Um, well, I know, and I'm going to apologize to you and our listeners right now. I know that we have way more to cover uh, with you than, than the show's time is going to allow for. So hopefully we'll be able to have you back on. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the events of 2008 and your book. Okay. Following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune in to Hot Grease every Monday at 3.30 p.m. Hot Grease strives to bring sustainability, localized sourcing, and other forward-thinking schools of culinary thought to the minds and kitchens of everyday folk. Each week, Nicole Taylor's conversations cover the entire spectrum of food enthusiasts, from internationally renowned culinary masters to moms on a budget looking to impress their tiniest critics. Again, that's every Monday at 3.30 p.m., Hot Grease on the Heritage Radio Network. All right, welcome back to the Farm Report. We are live with Fred Magdoff. Fred, um, before the break, we were kind of setting the scene a little bit. I, I'd love to talk about 2008. What what happened? Um, well, it, given, in in the five minutes. <laughs> well, it's in a way, it's similar to what's happening right now. It just hasn't gotten quite so severe, but it's getting there. Um, and that is the the prices for the basic commodities, uh, food commodities like corn and rice and wheat 
and the cooking oils uh, from made from soy and from uh, palm oil, uh, you know, from the palm oil tree, the oil palm tree. Um, all of these went up drastically uh, within a very short period of time, and uh, this put a lot of pressure on people who are eating. Uh, you know, they're making porridge, or they're they're just cooking the rice and eating the rice, uh, etc. Because uh, many of those were were spending forty, fifty, sixty percent of their income on diet on on food. Excuse me. And so if food prices double, as they did, uh, you, you run out of money. Yeah, you know, to buy fast. Quick. And so, uh, so what happened was you had uh, some, basically some shortages. Not th- there was plenty of food. There was enough food to feed everybody well. Um, but you did have the supplies were tight because of uh, problems of, in some countries there were droughts, in some countries there had been some floods. Australia didn't, wasn't exporting wheat or or rice, as they normally had done. And um, and so then you got speculators jumping in. Uh, this happens at the local level with hoarding, and then you have uh, this huge financial system. We now have uh, speculation in agricultural goods is, is, a, is a big deal, and that's happening again. In other words, they figured they could make money uh, off, of, um, off of speculating on, on food, so they, they will buy you know the right uh, to, to a certain amount of food. And this drives the price up. And so, and also, we have a lot of, of, of uh, food now, which is going to feed uh, animals uh, per capita, uh, per capita eating of meat products has gone up um, by uh, by fifty percent over a twenty-year period, and we're now feeding, um, if you pardon the expression, uh, automobiles through ethanol. Right. So, like a third of the crop of the corn crop in the United States in 2007 went to went to produce ethanol, which is makes no sense whatsoever from an energy point of view, um, and uh, and uh, so it was diverted from the food system. So, so you you have a number of things happening, and also you have concentration occurring in the um, in the suppliers for agricultural goods. And the processors and distributors of agricultural goods. Um, you mean fewer companies are are doing that work? Is that yes. what you mean by concentration? Okay, absolutely. Fewer companies are doing it, and uh, and uh, you know, at whatever stage you look at, from just taking corn and doing something to it, or if you take it to the final stage, selling it to the end user, the consumer. You know, uh, it's uh, uh, Walmart is you know by far the largest grocery. Uh, seller in the United States, and they sell about 20% of all the, all the food sold in this country. I mean, that's an incredible amount. Wow. To be done I, yeah, by, I didn't realize it was that high. Yeah, to be done by one store. I mean, one, one chain. It's not one store, obviously, but one, one company. So you put all that together, and you have a tight market. You've got speculation. You've got a few problems uh, uh, weather-wise, which drives the speculation even more, and you have a crisis. And uh, this year, it's the you know the droughts in Russia last summer. Russia's become a major exporter of wheat. You had floods in Pakistan, which uh, which greatly affected a large number of people uh, in the wheat and rice growing areas, and um, and a few other places as well. You had these weather anomalies, shall we say? And um, so this has put a squeeze on on, on prices. And corn is uh, is now. Over over seven dollars a bushel. It was, I forgot what it was, just 
not that long ago it was like four. Um, and you've got, uh, you know, uh, m- many of the other ones, uh, uh, the uh, soybeans is up at uh, I don't know, something like $14 a bushel. And that... It was when it was 10 or, or 9, you know, not six months ago. And so you have this tremendous pressure. Now, it's not felt that much in the United States yet. Just just to be clear, that extra $4 in price, or the doubling yep. of price, that money's not going to the farmer. That's going to this kind of new right. kind of collection right. of intermediaries who are essentially creating a new revenue stream by for themselves. I mean, that's not going... I mean, it's not like the cost of production. I mean, or is it some of that the cost of production has gone up or the cost of... You know, like where where is that price balloon is coming from? A variety of factors, or it, well, yeah. I mean, uh, it depends, really. Uh, the on the commodity the far- farmers. Well, first off, farmers can many times sell their crop uh, in you know on the futures market. In other words, they can put it in storage and say, "Well, we're not going to sell it now. We're going to sell it you know, if they have storage capacity at some further date." Or um, uh, they can play the futures markets also they can sell their crop now but say they want to hedge and so they they can they can play the market like a speculator but a lot of this money of the increase that happens this quickly doesn't go to the farmer um there there were stories by the way from china you know cotton prices have gone up tremendously of cotton farmers who've just uh, hoarded their cotton in their houses they just have bales of cotton in their houses <laughs> waiting, waiting to see what happens to the price of cotton so so the speculation happens at local levels and it happens in the uh, large markets uh where you have you know what you think of as speculators uh, right. buying and trading these they don't they don't really want the product they're just playing a game. Well, similar to like think the housing crisis, yes. where there's That's a lot right. of there's a lot of different players and a lot of people who are kind of not making great decisions. That That's all right. leads. Okay, great. So, so, and and basically, what happens is once prices go up, I mean, it's it's the poor people that are hungry, and uh, and once prices go up, uh, more and more people are are less able to afford it. We have now 50 million people in the United States that are living in homes that are households that are considered to be food insecure, which is the USDA's way of saying hunger. Yeah. They don't use that term anymore. And there's over a billion people in the world who are who are uh, really hungry and suffering from malnutrition. So uh, this is this is a big issue. This is not this is not small. And even when the prices come down some, you still have uh, hundreds of millions of people that are hungry. So what happens in a crisis is, you know, there are people who come into this group that weren't in it before, and the ones that were in it, they're worse off than they were before. The group of hungry people I'm talking, of course. Right. So, so um, I mean, that's that's a, a thumbnail sketch of what happened. It's, it's very complex. There are a number of issues that are long-term and short-term that uh, are happening at the same time. And they go together to cause this. But we need to keep in mind that if the food that we have right now and in 2008 was equitably distributed around the world, there would have been plenty of food for everyone. Okay, so so that's I mean there is from a production standpoint in the world there's a there's a pot of food that's big enough to to feed everyone essentially. Absolutely, absolutely. And do you feel like that's a, I mean is that a story that's not getting told? Well, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's in a way, anyone who gets involved in this and and starts to just look at the numbers or anything, you know, uh, they become aware of it very quickly uh, because it's it's simple mathematics. Um, you know, there's more than enough grain produced to to supply everyone with the basic diet for calories, and then you go to protein and other other aspects as well. So I think it's in a way it's not talked about because 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 of the reason behind it. The reason behind it is is uh, is poverty, and we we as a world and as a country, if we just talk about the United States, uh, allow it to occur, and uh, and we we don't uh, we have the means at our disposal. Clearly, in the United States, we don't have to look any further than this to to eliminate hunger completely. And to, there should be no homes that are considered to be so-called food insecure in this country. Um, so um, it's it's a question of political will. And what happens is the the poor people in general don't vote, or they don't vote in the same percentages as people who are wealthier. Right now, in the Congress of the United States, there are a number of people who are more than willing to decrease any benefits going to poor people. Um, and this is happening in state houses also as their, you know, as their budgets are stretched. So what happens is the most vulnerable become even more vulnerable because they have no political clout, essentially none. And so it's relatively easy to take away a program that helps poor people, uh, try to take away a program that helps wealthy people, and it's very difficult, as we've just found out, right. know, with, the, with the tax trying to decrease, you know, the, the, the tax cuts that the, uh, the wealthiest of our, our country have, uh, you know, people screaming and hollering. Uh, and, and they get the ear of Congress through lobbyists and, and other ways. So, uh, so it's, uh, I, think, I, I think that story doesn't get Every once in a while you hear it, that is, that there's enough food in the world to feed everyone. You don't hear it very often, you don't, and you don't hear it explained in the way that I've explained it. Um, because I think it's challenging to the very way we set up our society and the very way we operate, in which uh, people below you know, a certain income level, it's, uh, you know, they're on their own, you know, in general. You know, there's the food stamp program. Um, which which now has a different name, SNAP, but right. there, there there are some programs that help. Of course, we have charities. I, I know that. Right, but the the social the social safety nets. I think there's there's a lot of myths out there. I definitely would recommend our our view our listeners in New York City to check out the New York City Coalition, Coalition Against Hunger. They do a lot of really wonderful work and put together some kind of great information about the state of hunger and food insecurity here in New York. Um, let's shift gears a little bit and kind of, we have a few minutes left. I want to get into essentially the, the book, it seems like can act as a primer for people who are kind of interested in, in getting, uh, you know, on the ground kind of overview of understanding the agri-food crisis. Um, you, you, yeah. You've grouped the, the book into a couple of sections. Can you maybe just touch base on some highlights there? Well, sure. Um, basically, the, the first part of the book and the chapter that my co-editor and I, Brian Toker, uh, wrote uh, is sort of, uh, that is really like an overview of, of the book and of the issues, uh, even some issues that aren't uh, covered in the book. Um, but the, the first part after that overview 
is is really trying to understand the food crisis. I mean, where did it come from? Put it in a historical context. Uh, how is it playing out in India? Uh, what's the role of so-called fair trade? Uh, the biofuels, uh, and uh, now an issue we haven't talked about is this: the global, what's called the global, the global land grab. Um, so we have a chapter called the new new farm owners. Yeah, so for, I've, I read a little yeah. bit about that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, and the, and then the the globalization of agribusiness, how it's just uh, just uh, increasingly taking over in the, in the third world. So that sort of sets the background for what what is happening and why it's happening uh, from a. Global perspective that doesn't um, that doesn't neglect the United States, but but is much broader than the United States. Uh, then the second part is is really what is being done and what can be done. Uh, so there are, there are chapters dealing with um, you know uh, the, uh, the struggle in, in Paraguay uh, for a more sustainable agriculture. There's uh, on, 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 the, on land reforms. Uh, there's a very interesting chapter on what's happening in Venezuela, uh, trying to build a new a new food system by uh, Christina uh, Chavioni and and, uh, and William uh, Camacaro. And then there are um, there's an article really Miguel Altieri is probably one of the best known agroecologists. It's, it's called scientist of the ecology of agriculture and. Uh, his chapter is basically about what can be done on small farms, how, how agroecology uh, implemented on small farms can lead to, to food uh, security and food sovereignty. Uh, and there are a couple of chapters on energy issues, uh, you know, how, you know, increasing energy costs, uh, can we, you know, can we do things better? Uh, one of those chapters shows that uh, organic agriculture uses quite a bit less energy and does conventional agriculture. There's a, a comparison between them. And then uh, the, the last chapter is titled, you know, Can Ecological Agriculture Feed 9 Billion People? Which is what's expected in the year 2059, 9.2 billion. And... Uh, <laughs> You're like round down there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, you know, uh, a billion here, a billion there, or a tenth of a billion here. Whatevs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot more people right now. They're they're yeah. close to seven billion in the world, right? Um, and it's it's expected that the population, if all the trends continue as they have been, which doesn't mean they will, uh, it will end up at around nine to nine point two billion. And uh, so the question is, can you can we feed those extra mouths? And uh, and Jules Predi's that last article, and I think articles before that, make a case that we can. And we can do it in an ecologically uh, sustainable way and uh, an ecologically sound way. But it means really a different system than what's being used now in the United States predominantly and even what's growing up in other countries like in, um, like all these uh, huge, huge soybean uh, fields in, um, in uh, Brazil and uh, now going into other countries. Um, and Africa now land being purchased by European corporations and by um, Arab countries. Yeah, that, I was say more familiar have, with the Middle East. Yeah, they have oil Europe. money, uh, you know, to grow food for them, or to grow worse than that even is to grow jatropha on the tens of thousands of acres. This is a an oil seed crop which is not edible, and it's grown only for biofuels to make a biodiesel. Wow. 
Fred, we are out of time. I'm pretty, I'm pretty bummed out. Um, I would love to have you back on to talk a little bit more in depth about the myriad of issues that we were only able to touch on. Um, for our listeners, if you want to pick up Fred's book, you can get it at www.monthlyreview.org. And the title again is Agriculture and Food in Crisis, Conflict, Resistance, and Renewal. Fred, thank you so much for taking some time with us today, and we look forward to having you on the show again soon. My pleasure. I'd love to be back. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Momofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD-50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Bolte of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant.